Next to Jesus' death and resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, what takes place now in Acts chapter 10 is the most important development in the history of the church. Up until Acts chapter 10, Christianity had consisted mostly of Jews. Christianity initially was viewed as a sect of Judaism. But Jesus promised Peter the keys to the kingdom. And the man with those keys would open the door of salvation to both Jews and Gentiles. In Acts chapter 10, God blazes a new trail and Peter leads the way. God uses an exotic vision to open up Peter's mind and his heart and his mouth and the community of God. A vision supplies Peter courage to chart a new course. Acts chapter 10, understand this, Acts chapter 10 forever changes the scope of Christianity and the makeup of the church. You cannot overemphasize the importance of this chapter. Beginning in Acts chapter 10, a daring new work begins. God teaches Peter that what was once called unclean, he now calls okay. And that includes both pork chops and Gentiles. We pick up where we left it off last time. Verse 31 of chapter 9, Acts chapter 9, verse 32 tonight. Peter is following Jesus and we're told, Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydia. Now Lydia was an Israeli city with a large Gentile population. It was about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem, which would put it 8 miles from the Mediterranean port of Joppa. Now there, Peter found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Now every morning for the first 18 years of my life, this is what my mother commanded me to do. Arise, Sandy, and make your bed. And I'm sad to report to you that I was not very obedient most of the time. But not so with Aeneas. Luke tells us, then he arose immediately. A miracle had occurred. Not just that he made his bed, but that he was able to arise on what were previously crippled legs. And so all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Sharon was a regional name. It encompassed the entire coastal plain, Sharon or Sharon, the plain of Sharon. The good news about Jesus was spreading now from Jerusalem and the hills of Samaria across the western half of the country. The port cities were next. The Jewish port was Joppa and the Roman port was Caesarea. Verse 36, at Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha. The word is Aramaic for gazelle, which is translated Dorcas. That's the Greek equivalent. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. 
And since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Well, then Peter arose, and he went with them. And when he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. You remember the Jews, they would, when they mourned for someone that they had loved, they would often bring in professional mourners. They would actually pay people to come in and weep and wail and make a, a big deal about the, the loss and take the grief and amplify it. But Peter, he put out the mourners and the professional weepers. He put them out of the room, and then he knelt down and he prayed. And you should immediately start noting the similarities between the mannerisms of Peter and the methods of his master. You remember what Jesus did when he went into Jairus' daughter? You remember the first thing that he did before he raised her from her deathbed? He put out the mourners. He did exactly what Peter did. The first similarity was to put out the professional weepers. God prefers to work his miracles in an atmosphere of faith and praise. But the similarities continue. And turning to the body, he said... Tabitha, arise. And again, this is pretty much verbatim what Jesus said to Jairus' daughter. Jesus, remember, used the words, Talitha kume, or little girl, I say to you, arise. Again, Peter is taking his cues from Jesus. You know, it's interesting to me. I, I get the impression that Peter was probably in over his head and he knew it. He was a fisherman. He wasn't a miracle worker. And so what does he do? He falls right back on what he had seen Jesus do. He remembers Jesus' actions, and he follows him precisely. You remember Matthew chapter 9, Mark chapter 5. You remember when Jesus said to another paralytic fellow, he said, arise, take up your bed. Very similar to what Peter said to Aeneas. Again, Peter, taking his cues from Jesus. You know, it seems that whenever Peter feels overwhelmed, he goes right back to default mold. WWJD, what would Jesus do? But then he doesn't just sell cool bracelets or a bumper sticker advertising the initials. He really does what Jesus would do. And Peter got the same results as Jesus. For she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. Now, a tanner was about as close as you could get to an ancient taxidermist. He was skilled in dressing and in preserving animal hides. And since he worked with dead animals, the rules of Judaism considered him ceremonially unclean. That meant that he was forbidden from participating in any of the Jewish rituals. In fact, his trade was so despised by the Jewish hierarchy that he was forced to work outside the city. Because of his defilement, the Jews associated 
associated the occupation of a tanner with, with unclean work. And because of the defilement, the Jewish Mishnah even gave a tanner's wife the right to divorce her husband. That Peter stayed in the house of a tanner was another example of him doing what Jesus did. You remember Jesus was always willing to reach out to the sinners. He was a friend of sinners. He identified with those who who were outside the circle. Jesus had shown him, Peter, that it was God's will to reach out to the unreachable, to love the unlovable. I'm sure Peter recalled the words of Jesus, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. That's why he decided to stay with Simon. You know, it's interesting. Peter seems to already be leaning in the direction of grace. But in Acts chapter 10, he is going to free fall. He is going to jump out on a parachute of grace. Verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. Now, Caesarea was Israel's Roman port on the Mediterranean. It had been built by Herod the Great in honor of the Roman Caesar. It was a magnificent city with a world-renowned harbor. Caesarea was Rome's political and military capital there in Israel. It was actually the home to the Roman governor, and it was headquarters of the Roman occupation. And there was a soldier stationed in Caesarea named Cornelius. Verse 2, we're told Cornelius was a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. Cornelius was a Roman from Italy, the original Italian stallion, you might say. And he was a centurion, the equivalent of a modern-day sergeant, This man was the military's backbone. You know, it's interesting. Whenever a centurion appears in the New Testament, it's usually in a favorable light. Cornelius was disciplined, and he was trustworthy. In fact, he and his Italian regiment probably served as the Roman governor's personal bodyguards. Cornelius was also called a God-fearer. He was a Gentile who had tired of Greek and Roman paganism. He was hungry for the one true God. He had embraced Judaism, at least everything short of being circumcised. He obeyed the law's moral demands, and yet he had failed to find God. These God-fears were sincere seekers. They even gave offerings to the local synagogue. They were good people, but they were lost people nonetheless. Well, About the ninth hour of the day, or three in the afternoon, as we would call it, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid, and he said, What is it, Lord? And so he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Notice this. God had heard Cornelius' prayer. Hey, God always hears the prayer, the sincere prayer of a searching heart. I believe that. And he says, Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. For he is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea, and he will tell you what you must do. 
You remember back in chapter 8, God called Philip to leave a happening revival there in Samaria, to go out to a lonely highway, to, to witness to one person, to explain the scriptures to a single Ethiopian in search of the truth. I believe that God never allows a sincere God-fearer to return home empty-handed. Whether it's an aborigine in the outback of Australia or the little boy growing up in a strict Islamic country, somehow, someway, God will expose the sincere seeker to the truth and get them pointed in the direction of Jesus. Verse 7 tells us, And when the angel who spoke to him had departed... Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among them who waited on him continually. And so when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa, sent them to fetch Peter. Well, the next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Now, notice God's timing is always perfect. Cornelius' men, they're en route to Joppa when God begins to work on the other end of the connection. He begins to tackle Peter's reluctance. And Joppa was the perfect backdrop for Peter's vision. Remember, this was the town where Jonah set sail. Jonah, the bigot. Jonah, a prejudiced Jew who hated Ninevites. In Jonah's mind, in Jonah's heart, God's salvation was for Jews only. But God altered Jonah's direction, literally and figuratively. He stirred up a storm and he scared the ship's crew, who then threw Jonah overboard, slung the prophet, where a fish swallowed him up and then spit him out on the bank. And it was a repentant Jonah who went to preach to who? To Gentiles. Now again at Joppa, God is going to bust up the Jews only club. He's going to send Peter to preach to Gentiles. Now it's noon. The tropical heat is on the rise. The sun's climbing in the sky. And Peter climbs up on the rooftop patio to seek out some shade and to enjoy the cool sea breeze. And of course it's lunchtime, which means Peter became very hungry. And he wanted to eat, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance. On this day, God is the one who's going to serve Peter his lunch. And Peter saw heaven opened. And an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. This huge picnic blanket descends down out of heaven, and all kinds of incredible inedibles are on the grill. Yet all of the entrees are of the non-koshered variety. Nothing Peter gets offered this day is on the Jewish menu. God's tasty treats fly in the face of what Peter's religion had taught him to munch. And yet Peter still hears the voice from heaven, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now understand, in the first century, Jews and Gentiles were separated by pedigree, by circumcision, by Sabbath worship. But above all, 
They were defined by diet. A kosher Jew was religiously superior to a non-kosher Gentile. And that kosher Jew would never in a million zillion years pull up to a table full of God-forbidden food. Nor would he eat with folks who occupied that table. You see, Jewish dietary laws were the epitome of religion. Yes, the distinction between clean and unclean had some definite health benefits, especially in a day when meat wasn't always properly prepared and refrigerated. But kosher laws were part of a bigger picture. You see, God had conditioned Israel to approach life in a certain manner. All of life was to be delineated as clean and unclean, holy and unholy, pure and impure, acceptable to God and unacceptable to God. And this distinction was a grid that sort of laid over every dimension of life, over food and sacrifice and washings and houses and even people. You see, the Jewish law provided a means to differentiate good from bad. Through the law, you could pick out the good guys and the bad guys. You see, this is the purpose not just behind Jewish religion, but behind all religion. Muslim religion, Buddhist religion, Hindu religion, even pseudo-Christian religion defines clean from unclean. Every religion has its own standards and taboos and rituals that allows it to label the pure and the defiled. Often liberal critics will attack religion as the enemy of unity. They claim that religion is the great divider in the world. That rather than bring us together, it keeps us apart. It separates us into factions and it inflames hostilities. And in a sense, this is true. For every religion defines hum- or divides humanity into holy and unholy. And no other religion did this as comprehensively and as rigorously as did God's religion, Judaism. Kosher Jews were reminded at every single mealtime that there was such a thing as right and wrong, holy and unholy. Good guys ate the clean foods. Bad guys ate the dirty birds. And of course, Judaism didn't just end with food, with diet. It did such a thorough job of identifying good from bad. By the time you had subjected your life to the entire Mosaic law, you had to conclude with what Rabbi Saul in the first few chapters of his letter to the Romans said, there is no one righteous, no, not one. You see, an honest Old Testament Jew was forced to an uncomfortable conclusion that everybody is a bad guy. In the ranks of humanity, there are no good guys. And you see, this is why Christianity picks up where Judaism leaves off. You know, we say this all the time, but without its full implications hitting us. Christianity is not a religion, and that's true. Christianity is about salvation, not religion. You see, religion chooses sides. It picks out good guys from bad guys. It assigns white hats and black hats. It awards merit badges for folks for accumulating filthy rags. But that's not Christianity. The gospel declares that we are all bad guys. 
that there's only one good guy and his name is Jesus. And the goal of Christianity is to bring everybody to Jesus. That's it. Whether you're a Tech fan or a Georgia fan, a Mac user or a PC user, a Republican or a Democrat, you're a bad guy and you need Jesus. Unrighteous bad guys and self-righteous bad guys, secular bad guys and religious bad guys, pew-sitting bad guys and pulpit-occupying bad guys. We all need Jesus. Today, the line in the sand for the whole human race is no longer the food we put in our mouth, but the faith we put in our Lord Jesus. God bestows grace and shows favor to those who come to Jesus. Now, here's what's happening in Peter's vision. God is putting an end to religion. He's replacing it with salvation. Judaism was a religion. It was God's religion, a perfect religion, but it was still religion. And now God puts religion on the shelf and he chooses new terms for his covenant with humanity. Christianity is salvation, not religion. Since none of us are good, it's all about grace. And the only place you'll find grace is at the cross of Christ. Peter needs to stop being religious and drop its distinctions. People are no longer categorized as clean and unclean or chosen or common or white hats or black hats. The line of demarcation is no longer religion and its trappings. It's now a matter of receiving the grace of God that's found in Christ. Obviously, God was up to something, but Peter wasn't so sure what God was cooking up. And that's why he responds in verse 14. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Now here is the ultimate oxymoron. You can say, not so, friend, but you can never say, not so, Lord. Why? Because Lord is a title. It means master, boss. If Jesus is your Lord, you're under his command. You must do what he tells you to do. And yet I can empathize with Peter's reluctance. Asking a Jew to eat non-kosher food is like requiring a die-hard vegan to pig out on a chili cheeseburger. Peter was going to recoil. No, no. How can I do that? And understand, this was a complicated decision for Peter. Years of religious training had created a bias in his heart, a prejudice that had kept Peter hemmed in. You see, Peter was trapped by three powerful forces, by principle, by prejudice, and by precedence. Understand, principles are either informed or misinformed depending on how they're formed. You see, Peter had grown up a good Jewish boy. Tradition had forged his principles. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. He paid his tithes. He kept Passover. He made pilgrimage to Jerusalem. He offered his sacrificial lamb. And Peter had kept kosher 
in obedience to Leviticus chapter 11, he only ordered off the clean menu. His wife went to the deli with the rabbinical sticker of approval in the window. Shrimp, lobster, unclean foods had never crawled over Peter's lips. Hey, Peter never savored a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. Bacon was off limits. Peter never ate a plate of pork barbecue. It was a matter of principle. Hey, trust me, I will never doubt Peter's devotion to principle. To me, a life without pork barbecue rivals the zeal of a suicide bomber. Hey, when God told Peter to eat unclean foods, it was as if 1,500 years of tradition and the law of Moses and a 1,000 rabbis and his entire Jewish family were screaming in Peter's ear to ask for another menu. From birth, Peter's conscience was drilled to keep kosher. You see, this wasn't a matter of simple preference, but a deeply held matter of conscience, a principle, yet... A misinformed principle kept Peter on the wrong side of God's will. You see, our conscience is an organ that we train to act on cue. The conscience is taught by either truth or tradition. It can fight against the Holy Spirit or it can be his ally. In fact, go to the Middle East today and you'll see this on both sides of the conflict. Jews can't give in to Muslims without violating their conscience, while Muslims can't concede to Jews because it would be a violation of their conscience. Evidently, a conscience can be programmed by either truth or error. Peter needed to surrender his conscience to the lordship of Jesus. Some of Peter's principles were wrong. Some no longer applied. God was blazing a new trail. A sovereign God is stepping out of the box and he's recruiting Peter to step out with him. But Peter has to cut ties with a few long-held principles if he's going to be a part of God's work of grace. Peter was trapped by principle, but he was also trapped by prejudice. And don't underestimate the power of a prejudice. <clears throat> when Peter thought of eating pork and visiting Gentiles, it just didn't feel right. Now, whether it was right or not was not the biggest hurdle. This was just outside Peter's comfort zone. Prejudicial feelings caused his resistance. You see, I know some prim and proper Baptists today who would never come to church wearing short pants or mow their lawn on Sundays. Not because it's necessarily wrong, but because it would feel wrong to them based on their tradition. You see, there are some things that don't feel right to you, but that doesn't make them wrong for someone else. A Christian has to represent God's truth, not his own prejudices. To live by grace, I make the decision not to let my preferences or my feelings or my traditions govern my interactions. My prejudices are going to close the door to certain people, but grace is going to keep doors open. And for Peter to obey God, he also had to step over a precedent. He answered God, Nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. You see, Peter had established a standard in his life. This had never, ever happened, never. Peter had never ordered sausage on his pizza. 
And you see, this is the type of conviction that religious people applaud. Like an Eric Little never running a race on Sundays. Or a Sandy Koufax not pitching on Yom Kippur. I mean, a guy makes a costly commitment and he refuses to budge. And here Peter does the same, but understand, it works against God's will in his life. Not for it, but against it. You see, God is wanting to take Peter, not up to the edge of where he's been, but to a whole new place. Peter has to step over a precedent in his life if he's going to obey God. You know, some steps are hard to take just because we've never taken them before. Peter has a decision to make. Kill and eat or sit still and disobey. This was a tough decision for Peter. Perhaps that's why God repeated the vision three times. Peter had to wrestle with this truth. He had to dissect truth from prejudice. Peter's conscience had supported a precedent, and now it needs to be pinned. Verse 15 tells us, And a voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. On the rooftop in Joppa, God is weaning Peter off of religion so that he can embrace God's grace. Perhaps this is what needs to happen in your life. Maybe you need to be weaned away from religion. Maybe you need to go places that you've never been before. Maybe you've allowed your own personal prejudices to shun people that God wants you to reach. What a shame. It's time that we get past religion and we focus on the grace that God's shown us and that we now need to show others. You see, Christianity isn't a commitment to a principle or to a prejudice or to a precedent. Christianity is the pledge of allegiance to a person. Christianity is all about following Jesus. You see, the ruler always trumps the rules. The Lord always always overrides the law. As followers of Jesus, our conscience is bound to one passion, to please our Lord Jesus. We're not to follow religious expectations or church tradition or even the rules of our own making. We're to follow Jesus. Will you go where he goes? Will you do what he tells you to do? Will you love whoever he sends to your door? And realize there is always a knock at the door. Verse 17. Now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. Now here's what happens. We get grace from God, but then we give grace to everybody around us. And in the giving of God's grace, that sends us on a grand adventure. We begin to reach out to people we otherwise would have never cared for or never hung with. You see, religion is uniform and boring and mechanical and predictable, and it only hangs out with people like itself. But grace is wild and woolly. Grace breaks down barriers and opens doors. Grace is the call of the wild. You see, it's orthodox to believe in grace, but it's risky to start practicing grace. You begin to apply grace and you'll get criticized by religious folks. 
Dare to extend God's grace and you'll find yourself in some uncomfortable places that you're not used to with some uncomfortable people you never thought you'd hang with, dealing with some uncomfortable situations. That's what happened to Peter. As soon as God folds up the picnic blanket, he's got three Gentiles, Romans no less, knocking at his door. And they called and they asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. Now, while Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them. And I love the encouragement here. Doubting nothing, for I have sent them. I'm telling you, legalistic leanings are so deeply ingrained in us, they can derail our faith. That's why when you walk down the path of grace, you have to remove all doubt. Doubting nothing. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am him who you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and his close friends. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. Now on the way up the coast from Joppa to Caesarea... Peter had been thinking through this vision. He had been studying and understanding its implications. In Judaism, a Jew was forbidden to enter the home of a Gentile. Entering into a Gentile's home would defile him. He would be unclean. But after thinking this through, Peter begins to realize that once you strip away religion, there's no difference between Jews and Gentiles. There's no difference between Peter and Cornelius. They both put their britches on the same way. They're both bad guys in need of Jesus. That's why Peter says, look, man, don't worship me. I'm just a man. It's interesting, though. People still do this to Peter. If you've followed in Roman Catholic circles, you know. In fact, you can go to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome today and you'll see worshipers lined up before Michelangelo's statue to kiss the foot of Peter. In fact, over the years it's been kissed and the lips have rubbed against it so many times that it shaved away his big toe. But the practice is nothing but idolatry. And if the real Peter were here today, you know what he'd do? He'd put his foot down. He would insist that he's just a man. This was his approach to Cornelius. Verse 27 continues. And as he talked with him, he went in and he found many who had come together. And then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection As soon as I was sent for, Peter's starting to get it, isn't he? I asked then, for what reason have you sent me? And so Cornelius said, 
Four days ago, I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. And when he comes, he will speak to you. And so I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now therefore we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Talk about a crowd of eager listeners. I mean, they're on the edge of their seat. They're all ears. I like what Charles Spurgeon once said. It's not a great preacher that makes a great congregation, but a great congregation that makes a great preacher. That's true. Verse 34. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality. Boy, old prejudice Pete. He's come a long way, hadn't he, in a short time. God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are his witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witnessed that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Not a fancy sermon. You wouldn't necessarily call it clever or eloquent. Peter just lays out the facts. And isn't that encouraging? Because that's all God asks us to do when we talk to a friend. Just lay out the facts. Just tell them what Jesus did for them and how they can be saved. And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. Peter doesn't even get to finish his sermon. He's got this great invitation he's going to give, but he doesn't even get to the invitation. He gets interrupted by the Holy Spirit. Everybody gets saved before he can, before he can finish. You know, Peter holds the unique distinction of being the only man that I know of to be interrupted by all three members of the Trinity. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter was interrupted by God the Father. On several occasions, he was interrupted by Jesus, God the Son. And now here, he's being interrupted by God the Holy Spirit. You know, there are times when we also need to be interrupted. When we've said enough, and now we just need to be quiet. Let the Holy Spirit do the rest. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Catch this. Before Peter could brief the Gentiles on keeping kosher, 
or clip a single circumcision or make a sacrifice or read the rules, God sovereignly saved the whole Italian guard just as he had done the Jews. And it had absolutely nothing to do with anything but God's grace and their faith. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnified God. And notice the same evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit that the Jews received at Pentecost are now received by the Gentiles here at Cornelius' house. God had saved the Gentiles in exactly the same way that he had saved the Jews. Well, then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Or in essence, they were baptized as Christians. And then they asked him to stay a few days. Now remember, throughout the Old Testament, you had to be a child of Abraham in order to be a child of God. For just as there were clean and unclean foods, there were chosen and common people. Jews were the special ones. Gentiles were the ordinary But when Jesus died on the cross, he did so to take away the sins of the whole world, not just the Jews. And so access to God is now available to all people. It's been said the only level ground in all the world is at the foot of the cross. Today, the only in crowd on this planet that matters is those in Christ. And yet, sadly, this is not always the case in some churches. There are church leaders today that like to lay down their own law. If you conform to their man-made rules, you can ride in the front of the bus. But if you resist, you sit in the rear of the bus. And believers in those churches get divided into first class and coach. It's a religious caste system. And it's the opposite of grace. In God's kingdom, there are no second class Christians. What God has cleansed, you must never call common. Later, Peter will write to all believers, and he calls them God's own special people. We're all special now in Christ. We are complete in Christ, Paul tells us. Not because we've towed the party line, but because we've put our faith in Jesus Christ. This was an amazing adventure for a good Jewish boy like Peter. Gentiles knock on his door. He travels with Gentiles to a Gentile city, enters a Gentile home, then preaches to a room full of Gentiles. What a culture shock for Peter. In one sense, Peter goes just up the coast from Joppa to Caesarea. But in another sense, Peter's experience with Cornelia is the shot heard round the world. You know, the rabbis at the time they would have said that a Gentile wasn't worthy to set foot under the same roof as a Jew. And yet by the end of this day, Gentile believers now know the same God, participate in the same covenant, have the same spirit and the same power and the same evidences as their Jewish brothers. Again, the future of Christianity was forever altered by Peter's obedience to his heavenly vision. In fact, you and I owe our place in God's family to Peter's courage. And there we have Acts chapter 10. 
Lord, thank you for your word tonight and for its far-reaching implications. Help us to continue to meditate on these things now. In Jesus' name, amen.